Um, Sherry, thanks so much for inviting me to the Transformational Truth Conference. I've been preparing for weeks, waiting, 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 and now here I am. Yeah. <laughs> Who's pitching? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm the whole team. We're in trouble. Um, what's a girl to do with her messy life? Well, she closes the door. So I am Jennifer Thorne. I was born the second of six girls to Fred and Mickey Riker. And I learned pretty early on in my life that I was kind of on my own. I had to figure it out for myself. And so being practical and hands-on and pragmatic and functional, I would experience things and I'd make a determination. This is something that helped my life. It, if it was, I kept it, and if it wasn't, pitched it out. Now, in my early grade school years, my family moved from one side of the city to the other, and in that move, that caused me to be in a different school district, and my sisters and I had to be resituated, and in my particular grade, there was not enough space to take one more child. That created a problem for my parents, and they solved that problem by putting me into a Roman Catholic school for those early grade school years that happened to be on my dad's path of work. So at 6 in the morning, he dropped me off at the church, which was always open. I'd sit in the sanctuary and wait for school to start. Now that experience for me was very different than my home life. My home life was very wild and free, and I was my own boss, and I could do pretty much what I wanted. But when I went into that school setting, it was very uh, different. And so I basically was told, shut up, sit down, and do what you're told. And as I reflected on that in my little girl's heart, I thought, hmm, if that's all the bigger God is, I don't need him. And I closed the door on God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what is a girl to do with her messy life? Well, God opens the door. So I grew up trying things and pitching stuff out and bringing stuff in and this, that, and the other thing, and I eventually ended up going to engineering school, and I graduated from that. Now, as I was growing up, I did notice that I had particular feelings for women, but I didn't know what to do with that, and I didn't talk about that. But when I graduated from college, I ended up moving to the Bay Area. By that time, it was known as the gay capital of the world, and I knew I could figure out what these feelings were. I'd actually had a, an experience at 19 where I'd kind of put the idea together that what I experienced meant that I was a lesbian, but I still didn't know what to do with that. So when I got into the Bay Area and started my professional life, I also jumped into the gay lifestyle. It didn't take too long to to figure out how to get into that space. And it was while I was living as a lesbian, out and proud, that the Lord began to woo me. And he wooed me through two women. One woman I was seeing romantically, sexually involved with her. The other woman I wanted to see romantically, but she would not jump over the divide. She was a believer, and I was not. In fact, I didn't know what that even meant. But the first woman I'll tell you about, so I was involved and engaged with this woman, and her parents were believers. 
and I happened to be over their house on a Sunday, and the 49ers were playing football, and the dad was rooting for the Niners, and I was standing there, and I was rooting against the Niners, and we had a really good time. I didn't care for the Niners. I'm a Green Bay girl. And um, so we had a really good time, and the game finished. We had such a good time. They said, Jen, why don't you stay for family dinner? I'm like, family dinner? Okay, uh, sure, yeah, I'll do that. Now, they knew that I was seeing their daughter romantically, and they didn't particularly care for that, but they didn't use that as a reason to exclude me from being involved in their family, especially since I brought so much fun and laughter to the football game. But that family dinner thing was something that I did not experience in my family of origin growing up. And there was something that whispered to this little girl's heart that gave me a place of hope and belonging and a place to argue about things. Because, see, they read this silly little book called the Bible, which I didn't understand. And we had great discussions around that table, and they always started every dinner with all the food on it, all the table set delightfully. They'd put their hands forward, touch, and they would pray. Also a foreign thing to me. But I had a lot of fun at those uh, Sunday dinners, and my little girl's heart just longed to go. Now this other woman that was involved in my life, I met her at work. And she was a sporty girl, I was a sporty girl, we both played racquetball, and so we started playing racquetball together. And it didn't take us too long to develop a friendship, and for that friendship to develop the reality that we both were attracted to one another, wanted to be involved with one another, played a little bit around the edges in that regard, but she really wouldn't step over that moral boundary to get involved with me. Now the other woman that I would go to family dinners with, I could have took her or left her. She was just someone to have at the time. The woman that I wanted to be with felt like she was the woman of my dreams, that she would completely, if she, complete me if she would just step over. My life would be complete. We would live happily ever after. But that wasn't going to happen. Now, at work, I was advancing well, and I was making a name for myself. But in my inner life, I was spiraling spiraling down. Now I was going home for a two-week vacation. I had one more family dinner and I went to that family dinner and the dad knew I was going for a couple of weeks away. And he came downstairs at the end of the moment and brought two books, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. And I did read that book two years later. It was foundational, but that's a story for another time. The other book he gave me was Hal Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth. And I did read that book on the plane ride home, and that book did this. It caused me to think, hmm, maybe that decision that I made in first or second grade and pitching got out, maybe I ought to rethink that. But that's as far as it got. So I went home for two weeks, and the first week I spent at my mom and dad's home doing anything I could to raise my serotonin and dopamine levels through drugs, or not drugs, but alcohol and junk food. And that was a great week. The second week I spent at my aunt and uncle's house, and they were having a family reunion. And all of the people that were there for the family reunion were all relatives that I had some connection with and knew to some degree. The thing I really didn't realize is that they all were walking actively with the Lord. And God just dropped me into that setting so that I could ask any question that I wanted. Now, I was not pursuing God, but he was pursuing me. 
And I didn't know that, but I did have life questions, and so I asked all kinds of questions, got into lots of great discussions. They did not know that I was living as a lesbian, and none of my immediate family members were there. Now, toward the end of that stay, my oldest cousin, Michelle, came up to my room. I was already situated in bed, and she came up to chat with me and to challenge me. Now, to this day, I cannot tell you what the chat or the challenge was about, just that she challenged me. And all I remember is that finger in my face. And she turned around and left and walked out of the room and had put on my nightstand another book by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, God knows his kids. He knows how he's wired me. And he knew to hook me, all he needed to do was challenge me. As you could tell, I always want to win. So I picked up that book, and it only took me about 100 or so pages of reading to realize that you really cannot deny the evidence for God and for Christ, and so my stiff arm to God, he just disabled. And that created a great tension in my life, and so like any good student, I turned to the back of the book and I read the sinner's prayer. Ah, okay, well that's how you solve that problem. And then I realized, oh, well that really kind of works in my favor. And so on New Year's Eve, 1984, I made a profession of faith, and there was no glow in the room, there was no halo over my head. I made an intellectual decision to allow God in because I could no longer stiff arm him, but I did that with the motivation to go back to California and get involved with this other woman that I knew would complete me. And so God opened the door. Now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what is God to do with his girl's messy life? Well, he calls her to choose. So I went back to California, called up my friend, hey, we got to meet, we got together, I became a believer. I dismantled her stiff arm to me, and we brought our lives together. And for two years, we lived together as if married. So we brought our households together, brought our finances together. And in that two-year period, God did a couple of things. In the first year, he showed me that I was lovable the way he created me to be, and that included my femininity, which I had rejected for as long as I could remember. And for the first time, I received the fullness of myself because you don't even realize how much energy it takes to deny who God made you to be. And so I did experience a sense of peace when I did that. So that was a nice benefit. The second year, the Lord showed me that I lived under a fear of rejection, probably a generational fear. I can see it in my sisters. I could see it in my mom. And he removed that fear of rejection. Then he called me to walk differently. And I said, oh, Lord, like Moses, I can't do that. I can't walk differently. He said, just like I brought Aaron to Moses, you're living with a woman who's diametrically different than you in the area of relating copy her. And again, I said, Lord, I can't do that. You see, on a scale of 1 to 10, my partner was a, a 
15 and I was a minus five and if we walked into a room together in five minutes everyone would be looking at her and the light of glow would be on her and I would be in the corner in the shadows hiding the Lord said pick something you have a living library in you. You've been studying her for all the time that you've been together. Pick something. And there began a year of the Lord going, be different. You have an example, be different. And he took me from the place of being fearful of people to realizing that, you know, there's a lot of people just like me, and if I would be willing to dig just a little bit, I'd begin to see the beauty of the gift that he had made in that individual that he made me sit by. And so he changed my motivation in social relating. And I will tell you, I did feel awkward and stupid, and there was the ugly silence a lot. I'm a slow learner. However, at the end of the two years, the Lord came to me and he said, Sweet girl, I've pursued you. I've touched you. I've healed you. I've changed you. And now I'm calling you out of this life into a life fully devoted to me because you see you cannot do both and I said like Peter where would I go you have the very words of life I've tasted and seen that you are good so God opened the door and I chose him now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what has God to do with his girl's messy life? Well, he answers her honest prayer. And so since I had chosen the Lord and I journeyed with um, uh, my my partner, I had to go to her and tell her, you know what, I, uh, I can't do this anymore. The Lord's called me to choose, and I chose him. So within two weeks, she had a different job a thousand miles away, and therein began the journey of us unraveling our lives. You see, there's lots of emotional enmeshment in same-sex attracted people when they get involved with one another. And so we began unraveling our lives, two-hour phone calls every night, crying in tears, feeling the pain and the suffering of that sacrifice of that relationship. And in that pain and suffering in my life, I cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, you've got to bring me a husband and teach me how to love and trust him because I just don't know how to do this alone. Now, the Lord answered that prayer, and a gentleman came back into my life that was a co-worker that I had met early on in my career. My career was becoming quite successful. In fact, I was now a marketing manager on a new product that was growing gangbusters and everything else. And he had to come back up to the corporate office for his career to continue to advance. And we had developed a friendship. And it became pretty clear after a period of time that it needed to either be more than a friendship or we just needed to distance ourselves. Because we were both old enough that we didn't want to get involved with one another sexually and just have our lives unraveled. And so we decided, you know, it would be really good to maybe share our dirty laundry and see if we could cope with each other's baggage. I thought that was a good idea. And so we disclosed that, and then we separated for a time, and then we came back together, and he said, yeah, I think I can handle yours. I said, yeah, I think I can handle yours. And so we engaged our pastor to start marriage counseling. 
And we were on that journey, and we were getting toward the end of that marriage counseling when out of the blue, I got a communication from my old lover. Hey, Jen, coming into the Bay Area. I need a ride from the airport. Can you help me? Of course I can help you. Now, the Lord had already begun doing a lot of healing, and I did feel a little bit of a longing, like, oh, it would be so good to see her, but I was not unclear in the decision that I had made for the Lord and to my fiancé. And so off to the airport, I went to pick her up. And I helped her load her bags into my car, and I took her to the hotel, and I helped her take those bags up to the um, room that she was in, and that led to dinner, and that led to an adulterous moment. Now, I still was not unclear on my commitment. What I was unclear on is I could not see the depth of my brokenness, which the Lord just helped me to see. And so I went home, and again, openness and transparency in my relationship with my fiancé was how we started. That's how we were going to continue. And so I confessed immediately and repented, to which he forgave me. So then we went to our pastor, and I confessed and repented, to which he forgave me. And all of the rest of the story was glorious. Well, not quite, because he said, you know what, Jen? I don't stand clear before the Lord to marry you guys. I want to watch you for a little bit. So he was worried I was going to live a duplicitous life, get married and have things on the side. And he couldn't stand clear before the Lord and marry somebody like that. So he did watch us for a time. And enough time went by, and he said, you know what, Jen and Carl, I feel good. I think we're okay to get married. And I'm happy to say on August 20th, 1988, I became Mrs. Carl Thorne. Lock, stock, and barrel. And the rest of the story is glorious. Well, not exactly. <laughs> you see, I couldn't see the depth of my brokenness in my same-sex retract or same-sex relating. I also couldn't see the depth of my brokenness in my opposite-sex relating, but God was going to help me do that. Now, as I mentioned, I was getting successful, more successful um, professionally, and I was on a product, and it was so successful, there was going to be a sales and marketing and technology conference in Hawaii. How cool is that? Well, I thought I had arrived. And not only that, I was going a week early because I was a key account manager, and the sales and the marketing teams were going to get um, go in advance to do some strategic planning. And I was invited to go to that as well. Now, my husband was going to come to this conference as well, but not later, not until a little bit later. Um, he wasn't near as important as I was. And so I went to that um, week-long strategic planning meeting, and it got to be toward the last day, the full, last full day. Now, the Lord had already begun dealing with me on my use of alcohol, to which I politely told him, I've got this, thanks. That particular day, that last full day of meetings, the Holy Spirit was so heavily trying to convince me not to drink alcohol that I was quite frustrated with him because I couldn't even pay attention in the meetings. I mean, he was like hog-tying me down to the ground. And when, the, when the, the day finished, and we did finish up a little early, everyone decided, let's go up to the pool and have drinks. I was so mad that when I walked out of that conference room, I looked to my left, that's where the Holy Spirit always is, and I said... I've got this, now leave me alone. And I walked up to the pool, sat down in a chair, didn't even have to order a drink, one was placed right there. 
And I took that first sip, and that began an afternoon and an evening and into the wee hours of the morning drinking session. There also was a sales individual, a salesman there, who had cultivated relationship with me. And he'd spent a couple of years coming into my cube, showing me pictures, oh, here's my wife, oh, here's baby number one, oh, here's baby number two. And I just thought the world of this man. What a good man, what a good dad, what a good father, what a great salesman. And he likes me. Well, in the wee hours of the morning, I finally decided I needed to go to my room and sleep because we still had a couple of hours to go the next day. To which he said, oh, Jen, let me walk you. And so he walked me through the elevator down to the floor where I was on to my door and he grabbed the key card out of my hand and opened the door. I knew what was going to happen. I was so three, three sheets to the wind. My brokenness for opposite sex affirmation, maybe that what I missed from my dad, was looming so large that I knew I was going to commit adultery when he grabbed the card. And I wanted it. And so that moment happened, and the next morning, in my stupor, I guess I woke up. I didn't go to the rest of the meetings. I went out to the beach, laid my towel in the sand, and cried out to the Lord because I'd really screwed up. And I begged the Lord, please help me find a way to restore my relationship because I knew I needed to confess and repent. And the Lord did two things in that moment. He showed me the depth of my brokenness with opposite sex relating. But he also showed me that the, base, the moral basis that I built my life on was shifting sand. You see, I had believed in integrity and, and monogamy. But the way my monogamy worked was if I was with you, and then I saw you and wanted you, I'd get rid of you, and I'd go after you. So I would have serial you know, relationships, and I was proud of that. And so in that one movement, God just wiped it all away. And I really was a broken woman. I've never felt more wretched in my life than I did in that moment because I didn't even know who I was anymore. But God knew who I was. Now, my poor husband <laughs> had to come to that sales and marketing conference, and then he had to spend three weeks in Korea. So I did not tell him in Hawaii. In fact, I avoided him. I went to every meeting I could so I didn't have to look at him because I couldn't look at him. And when he came home and I greeted him at the door, I took him by the hand and led him to the couch and confessed and repented. And he said, I don't know if I can do this. And I said, look, I don't know if you can figure out how to get through this, but I would rather figure this out with you than without you. That's my first choice. The second thing I want to tell you is that I will never drink alcohol again because I can see how it makes me vulnerable to things that I don't even know are inside of me. And if there's any hope of restoring us, I know I can't have alcohol as a part of my life. And so he went away for the weekend and came home and he said, Jen, I'd rather journey with you than without you. And so we went to my pastor and 
he began helping us through that process of being restored. And so God did answer this little girl's prayer and brought me my husband, Carl, and taught me how to love and trust him, and he's still doing that today. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what has God to do with his girl's messy life? Well, he cleans her up and he takes care of her, but he really desires greater levels of healing within her. And I'm happy to report since that second adulterous sinful moment, I have not had another moral failure in our marriage. In fact, God opened my womb, and he has added children, five to be exact. But after child number three, he was after something a little bit deeper in me that I had no idea. Now, it took the Lord about 12 or so years to address all of the brokenness in my background that had to do with same-sex stuff. I can tell you that I move in the world of women. I am not attracted to women. I don't experience sexual attraction in any way, shape, or form at all anymore. And that was a long, long journey. He's still also working with me in the opposite sex reacting, but I, er, yeah, but, um, you know, that also impacts my relationship with him, so we're moving in that direction. But toward the end of uh, around 1998, I was now a stay-at-home mom. I was very involved in church. I was running a parent participation playgroup there. I was in children's ministries. I was w women's ministries. I was a deacon and everything else. And there was this question that had risen up inside my mind's eye that was tied to my old gay lifestyle that I just couldn't shake it. And I thought, man, i got to get an answer for that. So I called up a ministry in Tennessee hoping to find an answer, and they set me up for a phone consultation. No, I didn't need a phone consultation. I just needed an answer to a question. But that's what they wanted. I said, okay. And in that phone call, I recounted, and I don't remember what the question is either, but in that phone call, I recounted a memory that I have from when I was three years old. And this is the memory. I was, um, my mom was sitting on the couch. My oldest sister, Mary Beth, was between her legs, and she was primping her, probably getting her ready for her first day of kindergarten. I was on the outside looking at my mom, longing to be the one being primped and cared for. Now, I have recounted that memory to other people at other times, and the only thing I would feel in the recounting would be the longing, a little bit of the longing, wanting to be the one on the inside. But this time, in this phone call, when I recounted that memory, it's like God took a zipper and unzipped me, and out of me came rage and anger and terror. I was completely undone. If you think about a bottle, when you shake it up of soda and then you crack that lid and it spews all over the place, that's how I felt with those emotions. I was completely undone. It was all I could do to get to the end of the day. The next day I had playgroup going on. Now, I had taken a year off of work and went and got a theology degree, and while I was in theology school, the Lord gave me a vision for discipleship, which I walked in and have walked in and continue to walk in all my life. And so I would disciple women one-on-one. -on -one. And 
one of the women that I was discipling was in this playgroup. So the next day I go and I'm getting stuff set up, and this woman walks in with her child that happened to be in the playgroup. And you know how when you have two magnet, magnets of opposite poles and you bring them closer together, at some point the magnetism takes over and they suck together. When she walked into that room, the closer she got to me in proximity, that's exactly how I felt. I was completely out of control, and I felt like she was going to suck me right into her soul. Now, that didn't happen. I managed to avoid her for the rest of that, that time that we were together and get through the day. Nothing happened. And I will tell you that that sucking that attraction that I was feeling was highly eroticized, like I was on overdrive, and I had no control over any of it. Sunday rolls around, I get my kids in, situated into Sunday church, I run into the sanctuary, grab my friend Donna, drag her out to my car, disclose to her everything I'm experiencing and how out of control I am. She was a faithful prayer warrior. She covered me with prayer and then looked at me and said, Jen, you got to confess and repent. Now, I knew that already, but I had never experienced so much emotion that I had no control over. None. Think about uh, something in the rapids just going down the river and you're just at the mercy of the current. That's how I felt. So I did go to my husband, and I confessed and repented, and then we did go to the leadership of the church, of which I now was a deacon as well, and confessed and repented, and then began a journey that ultimately ended up in a healing, but this journey took me over a year to get through, and the whole time I was completely out of control, the whole time it felt like the ceiling was literally pressing me down into the floor, I really was in a battle for my soul. The thing that made it really hard is the woman that I was discipling, I also was very um, out of my control, responsive to her proximity and to her words. And so while I did not want to go and sin, I was clear about that, and I could, I could tell. Now, I'm not drinking, so there is no weakness in that regard, but I didn't have a lever to shut it off. And so we did have some communications back and forth on the edges. Anyway, um, I got myself involved in professional counseling. I found a group in the local area that had a, uh, a group that met that helped people walk out of homosexuality, and this went on and on and on for a year. Now we're in year two, and no relief. I went to my pastor, I went to the elders, they didn't know what to tell me. They didn't know what to say. They didn't have any encouragement for me. I was on my own, and my husband, who normally was my covering that I could confess and get covering prayer from, felt so threatened because of my biology was responding to, to this other woman, and I had no control over it. So he was not even an option for me to get help. I really was terrorized by God. He was not helping me, and I was getting angrier and angrier. Now, Townsend and Cloud had just released their boundaries material, and in a church that I had no association with, somehow I got a flyer that they were going to start this class, and I thought, why not? Nothing else was working. And so I went to this class, and every time I was in this class, I would spew my angst about God, and there was this sweet young woman who would try to fix me. And I would go, and I would spew, and she would fix. 
Well, came to the last class, and I really was done. It had been so long. I was so tired of fighting whatever this was. I had felt such a range of emotions. And I'm in the last class, and I just couldn't even take it. Whatever we were talking about, I, I'd had enough. And I got up halfway through the class, spewed a whole bunch of stuff about my angst toward God, and ran out of the room, down the stairs, out into the parking lot, and like a faithful long woman, she came down, found me underneath the glow of the parking light, and again tried to fix me. And this is what I told her. I said, look. This is what's going on. God is the puppet master, and I'm the puppet. And sometimes he dangles me over the fire and just singes my hair, and I can smell it burning. And other times he hangs me there, and my flesh burns. And I beg for release, and he doesn't help me. He has abandoned me. And when I said that, I turned, I went to my car, got in the car, went home. Now, I had also cultivated in my life a morning quiet time. So like a dutiful little Christian, I got up the next morning, <laughs> went down to my spot, and I sat there, and what echoed in my mind's eye was, God has abandoned me, over and over and over and over again. And then I began thinking about that reality, and I said, God, that's not true. You're the one that pursued me. You're the one that healed me. You're the one that changed me. You're the one that called me out. You're the one that answered my prayer for my husband. You're the one that opened my womb, which is a story for another time. And you're the one that got me to this place. I am not abandoned. And just in the same way that God started that journey, he finished that journey. Now let me tell you what I think was going on. And I don't know if I'm running over a little bit, but my mom used to tell me another story, and I have no memory of this. And here's the story. When my mom was pregnant with my next sister, she was ill and couldn't care for us, so she sent my sister Marybeth, who was a year and a half old, to one family, and me, six months of age, to another family. So I was ripped from my mother, and for three months, from six months to nine months, I lived in a foreign land. When I came home, and this is the way my mom would finish this story, she says, Jen, when you came home, you would only go to your father. So whatever happened to me from six months to nine months, I must have been filled with perhaps anger and rage and terror, and what God did to me in that season, that long season that I felt like he was evil, hanging me out of the fire, is that he gave me the opportunity to re-experience all of the emotion that I experienced at six months of age that I had no language for, that I had no way to process, and there was no way the family who was caring for me even knew that I was experiencing, but God knew. And for whatever reason, in his sovereign um, will, he decided that this was the season to address this. So what does a six-month-old child do when they're taken from their mother's arms? And there was good reason for that. And so God gave me language to process through what I experienced at such a young age so that I could be made whole and that I could have truth in my innermost being. Now, when I put my story together for this moment, I stepped back and I said, Lord, what is it that you really want me to say 
or that you really want to do, because it's a great story, don't you think? And this is what the Lord did. He directed my eyes to 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and it says, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous because he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil because the devil has sinned from the beginning. So this is my challenge to you. There are some of you here or on the video who are practicing righteousness and you are righteous but Satan's got your eyes fixed on the last sin that you committed and you are now living under false guilt and condemnation and shame. And he's telling you today, lay that stuff down, confess it and repent it and get your eyes back on the Lord so that times of refreshing can come from him. And there are some of you that are living a duplicitous life. And just like God called me to choose, so you cannot practice sin, I don't care how you're doing it, and make the outside look right, and be well with the Lord. And you're not in the family of God. So God is calling you this day to choose as well. And I just want to pray for us, if you wouldn't mind. Father God, just so thankful to have the opportunity to share my story here. Thank you for your gracious work of the cross that covers us, Lord, that continually washes us like a, a refreshing waterfall. And there are some here, Lord, that are going to lay down as they confess and repent. Their eyes have been focused on the wrong thing. They are putting their eyes back on you, Lord. Thank you that you will meet them and refresh them. And there are some, Lord, here that are struggling in their inner life to make that decision for you. I know that your arms are graciously, graciously outstretched to them, Lord, as they confess and repent. Let's rejoice together that they will now enter the family of God and begin that messy work of walking with you well. And we'll just give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.